Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, joined as usual today by Jane Koston from Chicago and ProPublica's Dara Lind. Uh, we are going to talk about impeachment, which is the talk of the town. Um, we had uh, solicited questions from from readers, viewers, listeners, et cetera, in, in the Vox community. And, and what I found was a, a lot of people were interested in sort of the nuts and bolts process stuff, which yeah. has people don't do like scoops about how Senate rules work. So it, it hasn't really been in, in, in the news. Uh, so I sort of wanted to start there. I, I mean, one interesting thing about this is that, of course, the president has not been impeached. And the House has not taken any votes on anything. It's just a kind of with a with a wave of the hand, Nancy Pelosi proclaimed that it is now an impeachment inquiry. And if you find that confusing, it it just is confusing. That's that's just how it works, right? Like there's no there's nothing more to it. Um, and then people were interested in in the Senate trial. And the way this works, if you look back at the Clinton impeachment of 1998, is that the Senate um, just makes up the rules as it goes along. And so they had early in the process these sort of contested votes where it was, will there be any witnesses at all? Um, and, and Democrats had moved to have no witnesses, to basically like muff the whole trial and just move to a quick vote. Um, but Republicans had a majority, so they said there would be witnesses. Then impeachment enthusiasts wanted like a like a trial, like a Law and Order episode um, with with witnesses on the stand, and they thought it would turn public opinion around. Democrats didn't want to do that, and the more vulnerable Republicans thought impeachment was unpopular, and they kind of wanted to cut it short. So they reached this compromise where witnesses did sworn depositions on tape, and then excerpts of the tapes were played by impeachment managers in the Senate. Um, which is just to say, like, they can do whatever they want. Um, and Mitch McConnell has said that his understanding of the rules is that he would have to hold a trial if the House votes to impeach. Uh, but that's all he has said. Um, they could do literally anything from, like, the trial of the century to a six-minute vote in which, you know, like, Democrats don't have 67 votes and, and it's all over. So the the impeachment denouement... Uh, it, it could be it could be very um, unimpressive. There's there's kind of an underlying timing question here, which was addressed in a couple of the questions we got, which were basically like how, a ver some version of how long is it going to take to actually for the House to actually impeach or why is the House, you know, now kind of rushing forward on impeachment after Nancy Pelosi spent so many months saying that they weren't ready to open an inquiry yet and they weren't going to, et cetera, et cetera. Um, the the Democrats' logic has been, or at least, you know, Democratic leadership in the House has has been that, you know, they are they appear to be treating what has happened or what's come to light about Trump's involvement in Ukraine uh, and his, you know, requests and the State Department's pressure to get strong anti-corruption language that may or may not literally be just investigate Hunter Biden uh, as kind of they're treating it as enough of a smoking gun that they're really kind of rushing forward with this. They want, you know, they've said that they want a vote on impeachment before the end of the year, which really is not that much time given that it's already October. And also given that we spent so many months with them not really taking any action on impeachment. So you can kind of see this one of two ways. The Democratic leadership appears to be believing that if they treat this as a smoking gun, that the public will agree and that they just need to like get to impeachment and say we've impeached the president the senate you know does its thing and also in case impeachment turns out to not be such a political winner for them they have all of 2020 to like state their own agenda which Nancy Pelosi has always been very big on like not being purely reactive to the president but also offering an alternative vision there is a critique that doesn't appear to be breaking down along ideological lines except in so far as you know people in the left of the democratic party 
often find more reasons to fault Nancy Pelosi right now than people in the center swing. Um, th- that that you know that this is that this is squandering prime media real estate, right? That there are not that many, that like there are going to be a lot of news cycles in 2020 that now are going to be dominated by things other than the House hammering impeachment. And as somebody who is not as, you know, plugged into the kind of optics of daily news cycles as y'all, like that strikes me as a moderately persuasive argument, but I'd love to know what kind of the, the kind of downside risk is of a more protracted impeachment process. So something I'm interested in is like I, I want to back up a little bit because I think that there's an idea of how we think about impeachment that is perhaps slightly inaccurate. So a couple of the questions we got are like, why impeach him for this, but not for Yemen or for the situation on the border or for lying about thousands of different things? And also like the idea of what impeachment is supposed to do, because impeachment, though it will involve legal questions, is not really like the idea of high crimes and misdemeanors. I think, Matt, maybe we could get into that a little bit, because this is not like a, this is not law and order. I wish it were because God, I love law and order, but this is not, it's a political question, not so much a legal one exactly. Yeah. And some people had, had asked about, you know, like what laws did Trump break here potentially? And they asked specific other people who knew better, um, are aware that like, it seems like technically you could construe this whole thing as a violation of campaign finance law because it is a crime to solicit something of value from a foreign entity um, for the purposes of your political campaign. So if you wanted to hang a legal charge on uh, Rudy Giuliani, I guess, in particular, I I think that might be what you would want to say. But I think fundamentally the point is that impeachment is not about law in that sense, right? Like if you caught the president like jaywalking across 17th Street, um, like that that's illegal, but you obviously wouldn't impeach someone over that. Right. Like I, I think the Mueller report might have distorted the discourse on this a little bit because the conclusion of the Mueller report on the obstruction of justice stuff was we didn't think about whether the president could have committed could be prosecuted for a crime because we have guidance that we can't prosecute the president for a crime. There is a political remedy for this, and that remedy is impeachment. That is, it is simultaneously true that mainstream interpretation of the DOJ's authority says that you cannot prosecute the president because impeachment's the only way to remove him and that impeachment is not limited to the, you know, violations of the U.S. code in the strict sense. I mean, mean, the the basic question of impeachment is the magnitude of the inappropriateness, right? And the ability to forge a consensus in Congress about the inappropriateness. And the key thing here, I'm going to kick it back to to Jane with this, but, but the key thing here seems to me to be that a number of Republicans are willing to say that they feel this was at least inappropriate, right? I mean, there's a question as to how far Ben Sass, Mitt Romney, others will go in their criticisms of these dealings with Ukraine, but like they are in fact critical of it, which means Democrats can both all be very critical of it and also can say it's not a foregone conclusion that Republicans won't turn on him over this because some of them have. Well, the question is, though, that what, what the statements we've gotten, even from Mitt Romney, have basically been like, this is bad, but it's not impeachable bad. And that seems to be the the basic sentiment, like among conservatives who are Trump leaning conservatives. So let's say that there are about three groups. There is the this isn't illegal. Everyone does this. Everyone should do this. Why are you so mad about it? And we'll call that kind of the Federalist wing. Then there's the this is bad, but not impeachable. Actually, let's look back at Obama kind of thing. And if you, there was an op-ed that was from the Tucker Carlson and his fellow founder of the Daily Caller a couple of days ago. There was basically like, sure, Trump shouldn't have done this. But really, like, hasn't this happened before? It's not illegal. It's just unseemly. And you know, so we'll call that the Daily Caller wing. And then there's been the Mitt Romney. This is very concerning. I've raised both of my eyebrows and put them down at the same time kind of response, which is 
you know, this is bad. We would say it's bad if it were someone else. We should be able to say it's bad when it's Trump. That does not necessarily mean that we're getting towards impeachment in the Senate bad. And there's been some um, reporting from Gabriel Sherman and the Vanity Fair, who's talked about how, you know, this isn't Romney trying to launch a primary candidacy. This is him trying to see if he can circle at least one or two wagons to get people on board, perhaps in the Senate. Now, again, we're not sure of the veracity of all of that, because occasionally these are the kinds of things that get reported that are like that get people super excited and then nothing happens, which is often what happens in reporting in general. But there are kind of the three of the Trump's leaning conservatives. Those seem to be the three basic wings, though. I do want to go back because I think that, you know, a couple of people have asked this question, like, is it, you know, why is this an impeachable offense as opposed to one other potentially impeachable offense? There's there have been the numerous arguments. Uh, I think there's a piece in New Republic about this, like, you know, we should actually just have an impeachment hearing that's about everything Trump has done. And then there's been the response that like, you know, from conservatives, like you've been trying to impeach him since inauguration day, that kind of thing. But then also like, you know, has this happened before? You know, have there been, because I think that there's been references to, you know, how the Ukraine was involved in 2016, which is how this whole story goes, because we're going to repeat 2016 for the rest of our natural lives. So I think getting into like, what actually took place here that we know of? And, you know, why is that an impeachable offense or perhaps an arguably an impeachable offense if you are among the Democrats who and the some Republicans not in Congress were favoring actually, impeachment? I think that the argument that Democrats have been trying to impeach Trump since Inauguration Day is particularly striking because this is exactly the discourse that Nancy Pelosi has been trying to avoid for the last nine months, mm-hmm. right? Like, by taking the House majority and immediately saying, instead of impeaching President Trump, which, by the way, we can do now, we are just going to engage in vigorous oversight. And then, for one thing, the vigorous oversight has really not yielded results. There's been unprecedented stonewalling by the executive branch. The stuff that we found out about hasn't really come from congr- from Congress making these very, you know, harshly worded, these sternly worded letters to the White Star Line, really. Um, but, you know, has in fact come from kind of whistleblowers within the government and scoops from outside and that kind of thing. But if you argue, if you spend months and months and months arguing, yes, we oppose the president, we think that he's not legitimate, but we also aren't going to impeach him, a lot of people don't hear the second part of that argument. And so I think that, you know, it's, it is it is both facially untrue that Democrats have been trying to impeach Trump since inauguration. If you think of Democrats, it's the Democrats who can actually do the impeaching. And a reflection of, I think, how weird the House strategy on this has been. But I, I think Democrats need to rethink a, a little bit, right? Because uh, essentially what's been going on is politics, right? I mean, Democrats come in and it's true, like some members were like hot to trot with impeaching Trump and the more vulnerable members were not because it didn't poll well. And then leadership whose job is to build consensus in the caucus and protect the vulnerable members said they were against impeachment. Then like there is a group of cranky pundits on Twitter who, to be frank, like Their mission in life is to just take whatever it is Democrats are doing and say it's wrong. So like 100 percent of the people who were complaining that they were impeaching, that they weren't impeaching Trump were the people who six months earlier had been complaining that Democrats were talking too much about Russia. You know what I mean? And then like now that Pelosi got on board with impeachment because the politics change, it's like, oh, no, I'm instead of saying like, thank you, Nancy Pelosi, for doing what I've been saying you should be doing. It's like, no, no, no. Now you're impeaching Trump wrong. You know what I mean? And it's like it's it's tedious. Like I completely respect and understand the view that the public policy convictions of moderate Democrats are mistaken and it would be better to instead have more left-wing views. But, like, it would be healthier to just say that rather than, like, continually just taking the opposite side of every tactical question. And so, like, the baseline reason 
the Democrats are pressing forward with the Ukraine focus is that the polling on it is pretty good. It's not great, I should say. I mean, it's it's not great in the sense that lots of people who otherwise love Donald Trump seem outraged by this Ukraine thing, but it's reasonably unifying. Like, it used to be Trump was unpopular, but impeachment was also unpopular. Now Trump is unpopular, and the people who don't like Trump seem to want to have this impeachment inquiry. So, like, that that's why Democrats are doing it. Um, but But the only thing I would say is that, like, I think they need to guide themselves by the politics now, right? And, like, going back over stuff that's already been hashed out seems like a bad idea. But, like, opening the door on new stuff that hasn't really been hashed out before and saying it's, like, part of the impeachment inquiry. Because, like, the president of Ukraine mentions to Trump that he's staying at his hotel. So that strikes me as, like, a valid pretext to, like, go digging around in general Trump hotel-type antics. Um, right. Or, for that matter, you know, if if after after Trump said on television last week, you know, China, if you would like to investigate Joe Biden, like— in the middle of trade talks, what is going on there? There are definitely some other avenues that if you wanted to build a pattern and practice of using foreign relations for personal and domestic gain, you could do that. At a minimum, like ask Robert Lighthizer to come down and say, has the president ever suggested to you that, you know, and like maybe the answer is no, right? Like legitimately, like part of oversight is that like, Sometimes the executive branch has not done anything wrong. Um, and in some ways, it might be healthy to, like, throw some accusations like that out there that the Trump administration might want to respond to. Because, like, right now they're stonewalling everything, right? right? But Literally, like, it's a, as we speak, the ambassador to Ukraine is uh, – it professes to be very, very sad that he cannot testify before right. Congress today. But like, I think it is both a valid question as to whether the U.S. Trade Representative's office has ever been instructed to put Hunter Biden into U.S.-China trade talks. Right. And also very plausible that they haven't been, right? That like they can just come there under oath and be like, yeah, that never happened. And be like, well, what did you think of the president's tweet? And be like, I don't really know, man. The president tweets stuff. Um, and, like, that would be healthy for the country, right? Rather than, like, Democrats ask for damning information, then the White House doesn't turn it over. And then Democrats – previously, the stonewalling had been so successful because leadership had been so afraid of doing impeachment right. that they had no escalation options. And now that's that's changed. Um, and, and you know, I, I, think, I think leadership, though, needs to – needs to consider in a in an environment where they now look like they do want to do impeachment how does that change their tactical approach to all kinds of other things from back in an era when they when they faced pressure from their base to do impeachment but that they didn't want to do it we should probably take a break mm. but i do want to know more about what this escalation stuff is cuz that's definitely we got a ton of questions about like if they continue to stonewall what can the congress do and I don't know these things, but I gather that other people in this podcast do. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media. Pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context. And it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. -P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. 
Planned Parenthood believes that healthcare is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So something I want to get at, you know, I think one, let's talk about escalation. But two, I think how much of impeachment is actually about like a public relations question. And it's it's been interesting because people keep talking. I mean, the only instances of impeachment that anyone in living memory can think about, unless there is someone out there with Andrew Johnson personal experience, which if you have that experience, please email us. But there are people, you know, Watergate and the Clinton hearings are it were entirely dependent on how voters and viewers saw those trials. And so I think the basic conceit of why it's we're focused on Ukraine and not on, you know, Yemen or the border or the the, the host of other issues, I mean, you know, even yesterday talking about Syria that you could hypothetically impeach the president for is that this is a pretty easy storyline if you can keep it contained to explain in about 30 seconds, kind of the elevator pitch. But I am interested because, you know, we're seeing right now Trump tweeting as we speak about how this is a kangaroo court. And so he's not going to permit this ambassador or the government is not going to permit this ambassador to testify. And, you know, we've heard about kind of subpoenas and this idea of, hold, you know, holding Giuliani in contempt because he won't testify. And people, lawyers sending messages in Comic Sans font, which really, you know, that really under the states the seriousness with which many people are taking this. So I'd be interested, you know, Matt, if you could kind of talk us through what exactly can Congress do if the Trump administration is like, we're just so not going to do I this. think Democrats are thinking about this the wrong way, right? But so so technically, like what can happen, the, the, the way I think Democrats want this to go is they make these requests, uh, Trump stonewalls, that makes him look guilty. And also, right, in the Madisonian framework, there should be Republican Party senators who are Senate veterans who at this point in their lives are clearly not going to become president of the United States. You know, just guys like kicking around there, right? Um, you know, as, as there always are. And these Senate old timers should be upset at the diminution of the powers of Congress as an institution. And this causes them to start turning on Trump. Right. Creating problems with him and escalating the pressure on him to cooperate with Congress. And the fact is, is that like Congress doesn't work like that anymore. And it hasn't worked like that for a while. Watergate and not only like the real facts of Watergate, but like literally the movie made about Watergate is very influential in American political culture, right? But like, A, like that movie is a fictionalization of a book, which itself is not like a totally honest depiction of what happened in a completely different period in American politics. And I think it would be useful for Democrats to think less about how a corrupt president was reigned in in 1973 and more about how corrupt leaders were forced from office in in the past 10 years in South Korea, in Spain, in Romania. Um, and in all of these cases, what was required was mass protest in the streets. That's the escalation from ordinary politics to extraordinary politics. Obviously, Nancy Pelosi can't snap her fingers and like cause mass mobilization to exist. But leaders, particularly because leaders um, talk to union leaders, you know, environmental group leaders, major donors, they talk to the media. They have ways of communicating what kinds of things they want to see and what kinds of things they they don't want to see. And we're so far from, from that poll, right? Like there was an Axios article recently saying that the prospects for the USMCA agreement were actually looking better thanks to impeachment 
Uh, and I don't know if this was true or not, because it's sometimes hard to tell with these blind items. Uh, but what they were saying is that, like, Pelosi wants to show that Congress can still get things done despite impeachment. So that's leaning on her even more to, like, want to go put this forward. And I don't know if that's true or not. But what's clearly true is that we are not seeing the opposite, right? She isn't saying... Look, if you're going to refuse to engage with completely legally valid congressional requests, there's no way we can move forward on this, Um, right? That would be like a small way of pressure. A bigger way of pressure, this guy, the ambassador to the EU, right, he also owns a chain of luxury hotels, mostly in the Pacific Northwest. And like, I don't know, right, like the mayor of Seattle could send the health inspector into the kitchens at all his hotels. And he could say, oh, you're just hassling me because you're my political enemy. And the mayor of Seattle could say, yeah, fuck you. Right? Like, yeah, like... Or, I, you know, no, I'm just very, very interested in, you know, in in right. hotel sanitation. I mean, frankly, just like you're very, very interested in rooting out corruption. Right. And like, frankly, there's more than one mayor. It's like the mayor of Seattle could say, fuck you. The mayor of Portland could pretend it's about something else. Um, There could be a crowd. You could get an egg thrown on your face if you were walking out of one of this guy's hotels. You know, there's there are ways to escalate. And the ways that you escalate in like mass politics are not like inside the four walls of the United States Capitol. And in 2017, when Democrats clearly had no power on Capitol Hill, this is what they did. Right. So I don't think they like don't know how it works. They have decided that that's too risky and they don't want to go there. Right. I mean, I think that part of it is that it looks like Democrats have sorted themselves into the party of order Muppets. Right. Like they have decided that being a party that cares about norms and governance, at least elected Democrats, is very important to their brand as a party. The other part of it, though, is that like when you're talking about, you know, eggs getting thrown in people's faces, there's definitely a belief among, you know, the conventional D.C. Democratic type of person that mass mobilization is politically polarizing, right? That people who are currently softly in favor of impeachment and don't really like what Trump is doing will be motivated to support Trump if they see Lots and lots of people out in the streets against him, especially if those people are doing anything more confrontational than holding signs. And I don't know that we've seen that that is true. And I don't know that, you know, how sensitive to the gravity of the wrong it is. But the idea that elected Democrats would be in league with people who are playing the quote unquote outside game goes against 2017 aside. And I think 2017 has been a little bit memory hold, frankly, in 2019, now that Democrats actually have the House. It goes against a generation of how Democratic Party insiders think governance is supposed to work. Now, I think that it's weird because I'm on two. I'm in two minds on this question, because I think that, yes, there would be kind of the response from, you know, from the RNC and from like conservative media, like, oh, these Democrats, like we're trying to get real stuff done, which, no, they're not trying to get real stuff done. It's not as if Congress has been this bastion of productivity over the last two years, because everything, you know, what besides judges, nothing has really gotten through the Senate, despite the House's efforts to do things. But also, you know, we've seen this kind of fetishization in some media outlets of like, you know, of coming together or the end of divisiveness, which the idea that like divisiveness is the worst thing that could possibly happen in this country is stupid. And I'll say that here and now. However, I do think that so much of this question relies on Democrats in some way appearing to be above the fray, above egg throwing or, you know, hypothetical. I'm just trying to think of like how this would somehow get spun to involve Antifa. And this entire idea that like, you know, everyday people, sure, they're concerned and waggling their eyebrows about what Trump has done, but they're, you know, but people value order more than anything else. Again, I would be interested to see some research or polling on how much, how true that is. But I do think that, especially in D.C., the idea it's it's a confrontational issue, because on the one hand, you're getting base Democrats and people on the left saying, like, fuck these people. We need to get this guy out. What he is doing is wrong. And if we look bad while doing it, well, so what? But then I do think that there are people you know, who are representing districts 
that very much were like, we sent you in, t- in during the midterms because we're, you know, in suburban conservative leading districts who still elected Democrats like Abigail Spanberger and others because they basically were like, we are not going to get involved in whatever Trump is doing. All we are trying to do is really focus on what our districts want. And our districts are, you know, they're not Trump fans, but they're not super big fans of the, the idea of Democrats, not Democrats specifically, not like they'll be, like, I like my representative. But then, you know, when Democrats, when you say that word, somehow it turns into just referencing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez or some sort of like people who lean further left than some of these districts are think that they would like to go. And so I do think that there is this kind of this weird tension. And I'm not really sure. I mean, I'm very glad that I am not a congressional Democrat because I don't know how you address that. I think there's something to be said for the fact that we are focusing so much on congressional Democrats and their strategy in the impeachment phase rather than the thing that's actually the open question, which is impeachment appears to be a foregone conclusion at this point. You know, whether he will actually get convicted in the Senate is like is appears to Probably very few people would bet on that outcome, but we did get a lot of questions like, how could a pro-impeachment citizen move Mitch McConnell? Like, what is the world in which Mitch McConnell's mind changes? And that's a very good question to which we do not have the answer. I think a lot of the reason that it's important to focus on Democrats in this phase isn't just because, like— a lot of D.C. has adopted the mindset that you focus on Democrats because they're the ones who could be expected to be rational actors, although I think that that is the underlying assumption that drives a lot of punditry. But also that how impeachment gets done sets up the Senate trial. Right. <laughs> and so they're really we genuinely don't know what the politics of this are going to look like coming out of impeachment. That is something that Democrats, whether they like it or not, have a certain amount of control over. I would say, though, right, in terms of Republicans, a, I think a constructive thing for, you know, people who live in these states to do and also for uh home state journalists in particular who get to ask these people questions, is to ask the—there are basically three Senate Republicans, Susan Collins, Cory Gardner, and Martha McSally, um, who are at serious risk of losing re-election bids in 2020. Gardner in particular is like very, very, very serious risk. They have been asked in sort of different ways, like what they think about this phone call. Uh, Collins has indicated that she thinks it's bad, has not like gone beyond that. Um, McSally and Gardner have successfully like hidden in, in mysterious bunkers and not addressed this. But it would be good to hear what they have to say to bring pressure to bear on them about some of these process questions, right? Because, like, this is the basic thing. If you are in that position, if you are Cory Gardner, right, he's trying to walk the difficult line of the swing state senator. He needs to show voters in Colorado, the median Colorado voter, is not a Trump fan. He needs to do something to show independence from Trump and the Republican Party. He also, though, he doesn't want to end up on the other side of the kind of tweets Trump threw at Mitt Romney, because uh, Mitt Romney is like a Mormon political superstar who can who can hand his head high in Utah no matter what. Gardner's not like that, right? Like he needs regular Republicans in Colorado to to like him. But like an easy way for him to get some distance is to say, um, look, the president says he did nothing wrong. So I think we should hear from Ambassador Sondland. Right. Because like, what's Trump going to say about that? Like, no, you're betraying my effort at the cover up. Right. Like and and that is like it, it matters a lot what Republicans say, because a big part of the way public opinion works. Right. Is that if Democrats are unified on a topic and Republicans are divided, that sends a strong signal to uh, voters who are not that attentive or voters who don't like partisan politics that fundamentally the Democrats are asking for something reasonable. Right. Um, And like that kind of lazy heuristic, like it matters a lot. So even if we're only talking about a tiny handful of Republicans, if it goes from just Mitt Romney is complaining about the phone call to like two or three Republicans are saying, let's put out this stuff, let's let the people testify publicly, then that brings a lot of pressure to bear on Mitch McConnell. Because just like how Pelosi let a handful of blue dogs sort of like wag the dog, it's the same thing for McConnell. Like he needs to think about his caucus's interests. And the interest of that caucus is disproportionately driven by the small number of vulnerable members. Is this a good time to ask Jane to just talk about, like, 
the role of Mike Pence is something that kind of in a fact based how what did Mike Pence know and when did he know it uh, manner came up in a lot of these questions. But I think there's also the deeper question of like, and Jane, you wrote about this, I think, you know, article that just came out. Yeah. Um, why isn't impeach the president, get President Pence instead more of an like a rallying cry among conservative elites. And why isn't why isn't that a very easy escape hatch for the, you know, Corey's gardener of the world who are concerned, you know, who might want to show both loyalty to the Republican Party and an independence from President Trump? Well, I think, I mean, there are some within kind of conservative elite world who are like, this would all be so much easier if all we had to deal with was, um, you know, with, I think that there's a Jim Pethokoukas of the American Enterprise Institute who said, you know, who described him basically as no drama Pence. And I think that there is this idea, especially outside of conservative circles, that, you know, what do you get with Trump that you wouldn't get with Pence, you know, absent, constant, nonstop chaos and bananas pudding and sanity. However, I think that that ignores for a lot of people the point of why they voted for Trump and not for, say, Ted Cruz or Carly Fiorina or virtually any other conservative. Now, granted, if you go back to 2016, a lot of that is because, you know, Rubio and Bush and everybody aimed all their fire at each other and kind of let Trump skate through for a really long time. But I think that there's also this idea created in, you know, during the Kavanaugh hearings and through other instances that, you know, if Pence had been in charge of Kavanaugh's nomination in the Supreme Court, Pence would have pulled the nomination the first time that any sort of controversy eked out. I mean, granted, he probably would have nominated Amy Coney Barrett to begin with, but, you know, whatever. But I think that there's also this idea that Pence was brought on the ticket to basically make evangelical Christians happy and pretty much like ease the kind of social conservative-ish, you know, the Mitts Romney of the world kind of ease their view of this potential administration. But voters really wanted Trump. They didn't care that he wasn't, you know, a quote unquote establishment conservative. Um, that they, you know, they wanted Trump. And you know, I spoke with Josh Hammer, who's at Daily Water Wire, who basically said, you know, from a traditional Reaganite National Review-esque three, you know, three-legged stool of conservatism perspective, Pence is definitely more of a classical conservative. But it, you don't need, you know, I think that there's a view on the right that you don't need a classical conservative right now. You need a brawler. You need a bulwark against the dangers of the excesses of the left. And you're not going to get that with a Mike Pence, you know, Especially because if you hearken back to before this administration began, you know, when Mike Pence was governor of Indiana, I think there's a view that on the Religious Freedom Restoration Act that the state of Indiana attempted to pass, you know, the second that companies like Salesforce and Apple were like, we don't think you should do this. There's a view that the Pence gubernatorial administration basically were like, we won't do this then. You know, and there, you, you, I think that there are a lot of conservatives who are like, we, we don't care about the advancement of conservatism. We believe firmly that we are in danger and we are at risk because of the left or Democrats or Nancy Pelosi or drag queen story hour, something. And that the person who is best able to fight back, you know, to, you know, refu as Hammer told me, who, uh, the best able to, you know, encapsulate the mentality that refuses to be subdued and easily swept away is Donald Trump and not Mike Pence. You know, I talked to a couple of people who were basically like, Pence has never said anything interesting. He's like, he doesn't, we don't need him. He's just basically there to be vice president and to not really say things. We did not want him to be president. Something that's in your piece that I don't think um, like normal uh, liberals understand is that conservatives very firmly believe both that Brett Kavanaugh was framed and also that Mike Pence would not have stood up for him linked to that Religious Freedom Restoration Act thing. I, I feel like most liberals I know have like kind of like moved on from the whole Kavanaugh thing, but both for like red state Democrats who lost narrow Senate races in 2018, they are convinced that the mass protests against Kavanaugh like are the reason that they lost. And a lot of conservatives are convinced that this Kavanaugh thing shows that, like, the left isn't on the level. And so if Trump, like, fights a little dirty, like, that's exactly what you need. 
Um, then meanwhile, you have millions of people, like people who I know socially, who are like, I don't know, man, but like don't see what a like seminal kind of event that was for a lot of people involved in the fight and how they see other things, both like the idea of trying to bring the resistance in the streets back um, is something that moderate Democrats worry about because they think it stampeded them into taking a harder line against Kavanaugh than they're personally comfortable with. And also the right sees it as this like this like horrible uh, outcome that like you you need a Donald Trump. But whatever it is they think Donald Trump does, it's that he like fights back against that. Which actually brings us back to what we were saying earlier about the, the fear of mass politics is it's not it's you both have, you know, the red state Democrats who say the kind of mass mobilizations and the optics of that made it very hard for, you know, made it easier for people to turn out against me because they felt a good man was being smeared. And the fact that on the right, there's been this apocalyptic strain in rhetoric for the last several years that, you know, we're just we're in an existential battle. We you know, if Democrats keep pushing this, we're going to have a new civil war, that kind of thing that hasn't resulted in the kind of mass political mobilizations that we've seen from Democrats, but that carries the flavor of, you know, that that has has scared, I think, a lot of elite liberals and some elite conservatives into believing that there are large swaths of the country that are going to turn out in the streets with guns if anything bad happens to President Trump. I just think I just want to say to like Democrats listening this, just like factually speaking, there is no evidence for the Kavanaugh backlash thesis. Um, And that like studies, there are good studies that look at Tea Party rallies and they use rain as an instrument to show like localities where there were bigger rallies. I remember Democrats at the time of the Tea Party rallies, they were sure, oh, there's going to be a backlash against this. Like it's so crazy. But like that's not true. Your best news if you were a vulnerable Democrat in 2010 was that if there was bad weather on major Tea Party rally weekends, you didn't get big rallies. Therefore, you didn't get big press coverage of the rally and you did better in the election. And it's the same thing for Women's March stuff, right? Where you had bigger turnout, people do better. You see these same studies in foreign countries. Uh, you see, and I, I saw from Dara's Twitter feed, like even the L.A. riots in 1992, like if anything is going to spark a backlash, it's like people actually like going nuts, like stealing things, and which I would genuinely not advise. Yeah, I, I that actually, anyone... you, you're totally scooping a white paper that I wanted to propose <laughs> later. I, I just wanted to, like, the evidence that is available to us is that like highly visible public protests are a very efficacious political tactic in democracies. Yes. Um, which like this is this is very pointedly not an episode about the NBA in China. Sure. Although even there, like, I don't know. I, I the, the point is, like, it's, of course, hard, right? Like people would just call out mass protests all the time if they could totally control them. Um, but like, if there's something that you think is a big deal that pub- people are engaged with intellectually, like it's it's a good idea to try to get them to go go do stuff and, you know, hold signs. Uh, you know, I think my egg throwing idea was a little extreme, but like right now, right now, they're not doing Perhaps. anything. The, Trump wanted to cut taxes and Democrats staged huge rallies about it. Right now, Democrats claim to believe that Trump is subverting the basic structure of American democratic politics and the Constitution, which I mean, I think is a fairly plausible. It's certainly a bigger deal than cutting the corporate tax rate. And like they're throwing these subpoenas around, they're getting ignored like they should do something. And I guess we- I also think I think it says something about how, you know, and, and this goes to I, I have many hobbies, horse hobbies, horses, whatever. One of my basic beliefs is that like residential segregation and how what we think of the other side, whatever that is, is damaging our politics irreparably. Because you know, when I talk to conservatives and then I talk to liberals, they both think that the other has this the ability to assemble people en masse to do whatever it is they want at the drop of a hat, at the drop of the hat. And so, you know, when I talk to people at the Kavanaugh hearings, basically like the left is united against us and will come out in the streets and will make up stuff about us. And they, you know, they could do this to anyone. So there's this idea that Trump is both a stand-in for individual conservatives, but that also individual conservatives see, feel as if they themselves are receiving this backlash against them. And then they see Trump getting the same thing and they recognize that. But then when you talk to liberals, they're just like, conservatives are in lockstep. They're all united. And if we did anything, they would just come out with their guns. But I'm like, no, like, 
No one is in lockstep. No one is united. Everyone is mad at each other and mad specifically at people within their own circle. And it, it's just so interesting to see this idea of the other as being like, you know, we are doing things in order to pl to please a group of people we do not at all understand or interact with. And it's happening kind of on both sides of the political spectrum. <sighs> Take a so, break. Yeah, do, let's, do, do, let's do, talk do a, about a white paper. Do a quick paper. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. So this week's white paper, it, it's interesting because it's something that I think a lot of people have been asking about, and namely that's like when people are like, why can't we vote from our phone? Well, it turns out people have been trying to figure out whether or not you could vote you know, in congressional, local elections, or even at the federal level from your phone. And so there is a pilot in West Virginia, and the paper is called Under the Hood, the West Virginia mobile, mobile voting pilot. And it's from Larry Moore, the founder of the Clear Ballot Group, and Nimit Swamy, founder and CEO of Votes Inc., which was the app that people used to attempt this voting mechanism. And basically in 2018, West Virginia launched the nation's first mobile voting pilot for voters in that specific area. And people on Android and Apple smartphones, you, you could be a, if you were an authenticated registered voter, you could receive, mark, and submit a secret ballot from anywhere in the world. And it was interesting to me because, you know, part of this has to do with the, with blockchain managing these two, these particular cloud networks in order to provide security. And they were able to, you know, learn basically how this would work in general. And, you know, I think one of the fascinating things, you know, the paper kind of goes into the mobile voting process. It basically, you would, you know, you email a form to the county clerk with email or online selected. You get authorized. You get this app. You submit this app there. You know, it actually seemed relatively straightforward. And I think something that was, though, that was interesting is that, um, you know, people seem to be you know, 98% of the 147 people who completed the one-time authentication process submitted their ballot and every submitted ballot was counted. And, you know, it seemed like the authentication process seemed pretty straightforward. And so it was an interesting pilot program. Again, you know, we're talking about 183 voters who submitted these forms asking to be able to do this in 24 participating counties in one state. So this isn't a kind of, you know, we're not quite on the like, let's take it to the federal level yet. But it is interesting that this is something that people are already starting to think through, especially as, you know, in many states. And I think that, you know, I could in my you know, home state of Ohio, there have been issues with this in Florida and Georgia, where voting machines are one, easily hackable and two, easily breakable. I think it's interesting that how this paper kind of lays out that there there is the potential for another better way, maybe. I mean, I think we should be clear about the number of requests. The, you know, there were 183 requests from people who were eligible, which given this pilot, like given the particular concerns of the state official who was who had ordered, you know, who, like put up the order for it, uh, people, you know, foreign service and military personnel serving abroad. So there were like there were 200 requests from people who were who were ineligible but still wanted ballots. So presumably these people who like weren't in the counties that were doing it, weren't people who were serving abroad, like it's I think it's an indication actually that there might be broader interest in a broader pilot than just saying we really, really, really want to make it easier for people who are abroad to submit things via app. Yeah, I mean, you know, 
voting has become such a fraught question in the United States, right? There's this like particular context of West Virginia and people being abroad and the assumption that West Virginians who are abroad at any given time are likely to be uh, military members, right? That seems to be yep. driving a lot of this, right? And it's like a super duper Republican state where there's no question as to who's going to win the election anyway. Um, you know, and it's like if you open this up and you were saying like, well, the purpose of this is to make it really easy for like college students and whomever to vote, uh, are you going to get like a whole radically different kind of change? I mean, it's part of the just like basic rottenness of voting in America is that without some kind of consensus that like it's good in principle for it to be easy for people to vote. It's then hard to work on voting mechanics in like a sensible way because you don't you really don't have that. Right. And and like people on, you know, I, I don't want to totally both sides it, but I do think it's true that it's like it's accepted practice in the United States that like shaping the electorate is part of how you play the game. So everything is is seen through that lens rather than seen through the lens of like this is public service delivery. Yeah, I mean, that also kind of raises the big, you know, tech question for me, which is, yes, on the one hand, there's an increasing amount of skepticism of the current regime of electronic ballot machines and desire for unhackability at the same time. One of the problems with the current regime is the lack of paper trail, which is why you see things, which is why you see a lot of voting reforms that are designed to produce an automatic paper trail that makes sure that, you know, is designed to ensure that people know that their vote was recorded in the right way and wasn't switched post facto. So while the kind of distributed blockchain technology works in protecting extra hackability. It cuts against the kind of internal efficacy. How do I, a voter, know that the state government or county government or whatever counted my vote the right way and didn't secretly switch it and not tell anybody? Yes. I mean, it, it, it struck me when I went to witness a federal election in Germany um, how much having just a really, really large number of polling places and a really small number of questions on the ballot and then doing it by paper, like how actually easy that that was. Um, there were like, you know, big differences in the political systems. It's like they basically only had two questions. So it was really fast to fill out. But they just like they had a ton of polling stations. So it was really fast, even though the underlying technology they were using was like comical, like literally they, they were just like cardboard boxes that people were were dropping these papers in. Um, but it was it was awfully nice. Uh, which the one of the other elements you mentioned in there is is frequency of of voting days and ballot questions, and this is probably a good time to note that uh, if certain states definitely have primaries today that have not necessarily been super well uh, publicized. So if you are not in Washington D.C. and actually have representation in Congress, et cetera, et cetera, you should maybe consider uh, checking and making sure that if you're listening to this on Tuesday, October 8th, you're not about to uh, miss an important election. All right. Uh, with that, uh, we, we, we got to wrap this up. Uh, we're getting getting crazy, frenetic hand signals from, from the studio. As a very special uh, word, there's going to be an extra weeds with Mayor Pete Buttigieg tomorrow. Uh, we uh, sat down with him, talked about his prescription drug plans, an interesting interview. Um, and so uh, with that, uh, thanks to uh, all our sponsors, everyone listening. Thanks to our producer, Jeffrey Geld. And the weeds will be back on Friday. Friday, but first, it will be back on Wednesday.